ultimately, if you can invest in your skill sets beyond just degrees and education that the world's giving you, but like emotional intelligence, financial literacy, communication skills, like the things that the world needs to have in the you know, neurohacking world that they wouldn't know about that you guys are bringing to them that give them exponential result is mental capital. And when we have substantial mental capital that really enhances and improves other people's lives, there's opportunity for exponential growth and wealth because we're either going to impact more people or more, or more deeply impact those that we currently reach. But either way, those are really the roads to riches. So if we're stuck, just doing something in the name of earning because it's a necessity, that doesn't leave the space for thinking. That doesn't leave the space for listening to ourselves and discovering our purpose or creating a compelling vision. There's so many people out there that their vision is, I'm gonna work, fund a retirement, and then when I retire, I finally get to live the good life. Well, what happens if you don't make it because you're, you don't take care of your health? Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. We explore the fields of neuroscience, integrative medicine, anthropology, optimal psychology, systems thinking, and existential risk. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Welcome to today's episode of Collective Insights. My name is James Schmachenberger, the CEO and co-founder of Neurohacker Collective, and I will be your host today. And today I'm delighted to get to introduce our guest, Garrett Gunderson. Um, you know, before I intro him, though, I just want to say I'm, I'm particularly interested in the topic matter that we're doing today because it's something that's new for us, right? If for those of you who have been listening to Collective Insights for a period of time, you know that we've been covering many different aspects of health. We've dove into dozens of areas of physiological health. We've covered psycho-emotional health. We've gone into spiritual health. Um, but an area that we've actually never covered is financial health. And I think it's a very important area for us to look at because the world that we live in today, so much of what we want to do, so many of the resources we want access to, the you know, biohacks, maybe in the case of our community, um, are all things that require intermediated by money. So having a healthy relationship with money, having a good understanding of it, good ability to navigate it without a lot of the common stressors is key. And I think Garrett's the perfect person to be able to talk to us about this topic today. Um, so for those of you who don't know much about Garrett, he is the founder of an Inc. 500 firm. Um, he authored the New York Times hit book, Killing Sacred Cows, as well as multiple other Wall Street Journal bestsellers. Um, he is commonly referred to as a financial genius within the entrepreneurial communities, um, but this wasn't something that he was born with. Right? Garrett wasn't born into money or with a silver spoon. Um, quite the contrary, he came up in a very blue-collar working-class family, fourth-generation coal miner, I believe. Um, yeah. And so it was actually those early experiences and watching the pain that he went through and the pain that so many other people in his world went through as a result of not having financial fluency that drove his desire to study and master this area and be able to help others. Um, now, after more than 20 years working in the finance industry, he has shifted up his approach and taken what he knows best, which is money, and paired it with what he loves most, which is comedy, um, and developed a new methodology known as win, then play. We all have the opportunity to win 
but not only to win, but to win bigger more often and to attain more of what we want. But in order to do that, there are a number of myths that we need to expel and in place embrace truth and self-expression. So if you are ready to transform your life, your finances, your future, then today's guest will help you do just that. And it's time that we all have an opportunity to laugh at money's expense for a change. Garrett, welcome to Collective Insights. Hey, it's good to be here. Uh, it's interesting because in writing comedy around money, I've had to get even clearer and cons more concise. But today, I met with a children's author who sold 3 million books, wants to write a book on money with me. I spent a half hour describing concepts that I thought we could put in the book. And they have to get even more simple. And what's crazy is sometimes we think that money's complex and it's and then it can feel that way because of crazy things like derivatives and options and you know margin and, and all the kind of terms that we hear at Wall Street. But I think if we stop thinking of money as spreadsheets and numbers and start thinking of it more as concepts and understanding how it works as a concept and a construct. Life gets simpler, especially in how we relate to money. And so if I were to say that to this group, it's that money is a man-made efficient tool to exchange with one another. Money represents value. It's like a snapshot of value we've created from moments of the past, but it doesn't reflect our potential and it doesn't dictate our destiny. See, ultimately it's a byproduct. It's a byproduct of value creation. And when we deliver value through serving others and solving problems, money is going to follow that value. And so if we can really look at and separate that our self-worth and our net worth are not the same things, although some people chase it, that the more money they have, the more power they have, the more money they have, the more valuable they are, the more money they have, the more freedom they're, they're going to have. And the reality is <clears throat> there's a lot of studies that show from a baseline level of having money, it does directly equate to more happiness on a baseline level, because if you're not taking care of the foundational pieces of life, scarcity tends to be the dominant way of thinking. And our mind is consumed with how are we going to provide food and shelter and some of those basic things. But once those things are provided, if there isn't clarity, money becomes confusing. I like to say it's a, it's a terrible solo artist, but a great companion. Meaning if it's our only objective, then we start thinking the ends justify the means. If we only have this amount of money, we're going to be happier. Once we have this, then life will be better. And it actually gets people stuck in this trap of sacrifice. And a lot of times that sacrifice is at the expense of health, at the expense of purpose, at the expense of quality of life and relationships, because we've been kind of sold this lie that if we just hustle and grind and work, then one day, someday, will have enough money to retire. And the only reason people want to retire is because they're doing things they don't enjoy along the way to finally afford the things that they want to have when they're probably too old to actually do them, unless they're obviously following all the health stuff you guys are teaching, right? Because how many times do you guys see this where people are sacrificing their health for their dollars? And then ultimately we know how that's going to end up. They'll end up spending those dollars to try to regain health that they've lost. And that will be in a time that will be very stressful and difficult. So, so I look at money as uh, important. Some people say it's not important, but I have a joke that says, well, if you think it's unimportant, you probably don't have much of it because we need a bunch of useless stuff laying around. But at the same time, in my 20s, I let it define me. How much money I had, how much money I made, revenue that I had, profit that I had, stuff that I had. And I think that this is a, a construct that's really been intentionally built in a world of consumerism. 
And in consumerism, I think our mind is kind of poisoned with something I would call the consumer condition, where we think that we want to take more than we give in the consumer condition, where it's based upon scarcity, which is governed by fear, doubt, and worry. People in scarcity often think that profit is evidence of deception or coercion or wrongdoing. Um, they believe there's only so much to go around. So it's a zero sum game. It's about take what you can get, hold on to what you've got. It's about competition over collaboration. And ultimately the survival of the fittest type of mindset is why we have other aspects of our life start to fall apart or deter because we're chasing the almighty dollar. And I actually wrote this, uh, I think you heard me do my money poem, <clears throat> yep. which is, you know, a little bit like around five minutes of all the names we've dedicated to money. And all of these belief systems that are governed around money um, and that are conditioned through us in, in society. Well, I look at money as that efficient tool to exchange with one another. And exchange is, you know, through serving and solving problems and adding value. And the more we exchange, the more wealth there is built. But that comes from a philosophy of innovation and ingenuity and abundance rather than of that fear, doubt, and worry. In this producer paradigm where we see uh, that we contribute more to the world than we take from it, that world is, a, is, is different than that consumer condition in that, yeah, you might actually spend more long-term because you're probably making more because you're willing to invest in yourself. You're playing the game of value creation versus uh, you know, scarcity. You're playing a game of expansion rather than cutting out because nobody shrinks their way to wealth. And in this producer paradigm, Profit is evidence of value creation instead of coercion. And so if someone subconsciously believes that money is the root of all evil, or someone subconsciously believes that if someone has a lot, it's because they've done something wrong, they're going to self-sabotage in order to have an identity that they're a good person. And they'll come up with genius excuses that they might not even verbalize that would prevent them from being the value creator that they could truly be. And so for me, Vision is the ultimate container in which we create value. But vision is different than a goal or an objective. A goal or an objective is something that's, you know, you could probably do on your own, where a vision requires collaboration. It requires other people's support and help because the amount of time and money and ability one person has wouldn't be enough for something that's that far out of reach, but that would make a meaningful difference. And that starts to drive value. And then dollars follow that value. And when that comes from a place of prosperity, then that becomes our state of being. Because prosperity is not a point of arrival, it's a perspective. And with the wrong perspective, we get stuck in the consumer condition, get into scarcity, view money as bad, wrong, or evil, or limited. We try to hold on to what we've got, get trapped into budgeting, or get trapped into hustling. And ultimately, there's almost no level of freedom. And see, financial freedom to me, I like how, by the way, I said, yeah, you should just interview me. And I just don't stop talking um, from one simple statement. You didn't even ask a question, I don't it, think. It makes my job really easy. I just have Although, a small amount of passion around this and uh, really. think about it a little bit. So go ahead. So I actually, I want to double click on something that you said, because I, I think that it's potentially quite useful, particularly for our audience. You know, so you, you commented on how a lot of people have the idea that money is the root of all evil and that there's this sort of self-sabotage or guilt that comes up when people start to become more successful. And I know I've had that experience and I'm someone who's actually been fairly uh, skilled at being able to you know, build businesses and generate money. But as that's developed, like I've had to battle a lot of those beliefs to be able to further success. And I'm curious like in your work beyond identifying what some of those core myths are, particularly this one, 
how do you help people dispel that? How do you help them break down that mental sort of idea that they're holding on to? Because I think that one goes deep for a lot of people. So I took you through an exercise when we were together in Arizona recently. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that exercise is the single most powerful way to break down that experience of being in scarcity. Um, so I could talk about it a lot and I think it could make logical sense, but something can make logical sense and not make emotional sense. It could right. not change that feeling or that subconscious belief. And so sometimes those are a little bit trickier to find or to discover or to handle. And, you know, I, I, I know this because I did tests where I would go and speak for like a whole day. And then the next day when we'd start up the event, we would talk about scarcity versus abundance and where these beliefs came from and where they heard it. But then I would just take them through this three minute exercise. And then I couldn't get them to quiet down after the exercise because you could see the light bulb that kind of went on. That it's, it's almost something that I would use the term, it's to be experienced, not to be explained. Because, well, go ahead. So from that to lens, would you be interested in taking our audience through the exercise? Yeah, so let's go through the exercise to really understand, to really feel and experience this. And so during this exercise, what I'm gonna ask people to do is as long as you're not driving while you're listening to this is uh, close your eyes, you know? And as I ask you these questions, just pay close attention to your thoughts and your emotions. And I'll take you through this exercise and just stay with it, you know? Um, and just get, allow for whatever to come up to come up. It's not really about judging yourself or your thoughts. It's just about being in the moment. So. Let's start by saying you have an extra $10 per month that's coming into your bank account each and every month for the rest of your life. No strings attached, no taxes. It's just an extra $10 per month. So what are you thinking about? What would you do with it? How does that make you feel? Okay, so let's add a zero. Let's take it to $100 a month, each and every month, the rest of your life, just like before, no taxes or strings attached to it. Now, what are you thinking about? How does it make you feel? What would you do with it? Okay, let's add yet another zero. Let's take it to $1,000 per month, each and every month for the rest of your life. Now, what are you thinking about? How does it make you feel? What would you do with it? Now, I bet you could predict, we're gonna add a zero. We're gonna take this up to $10,000 each and every month. Now, what are you thinking about? How does it make you feel? What would you do with it? We're going to add yet another zero, take it up to $100,000 each and every month. Tell the day you die. Now, what are you thinking about? 
how's that make you feel? What would you do with it? Let's add a zero. Let's take you to a million, not once, but each and every month for the rest of your life. What would you do with that? How's that make you feel? Now, what are you thinking about? What if he made you a billionaire? What if you were a billionaire? What would you do? How's that make you feel? <laughs> what are you thinking about? Okay, let's open your eyes. And... Now, if you're not sure what to do with the larger numbers there, I want you to think bigger, to expand your value, to focus on impact. If your number where you stop thinking about yourself and turn your focus to value for others was 10,000, that's your value index. So that's the moment where we move from survival or scarcity or selfishness or even self-care, because it doesn't, it doesn't mean it's bad that we're thinking of ourselves, but we move to a place of abundance when we think about what we could do for others, when it's beyond what we could take or what we need or, or what we might spend. And in that moment, we start to think about the very nature of what it takes to be abundant. We start to get where we put value first, where money's no longer the primary reason or excuse we'd have to do or not do something. It's just a consideration, but not the consideration. Or the consideration of having it is, well, I wouldn't even know what to do with that. So I guess I got to think beyond myself. Right. And, and look, this is why if people don't make a certain amount of money, they're in survival. It's hard for them to think charitable, even if they want to be, because they're just worried about paying the next bill. They're worried about, you know, having the next meal. They're worried about the basic necessities, which can drain our energy and consume our thinking and create a lot of scarcity. But if we could have that inflection point where we know what our number is and we say, well, what kind of thinking would I have in that situation and begin to think that way today, that we start to think about the level of what value we could provide if we were financially set. This is why I think financial independence is important. I'll make a distinction. There's financial independence and there's financial freedom. Two different things. Financial independence is having enough recurring revenue from assets to cover your basic expenses so that if you didn't open a computer or look at a phone or go to an office, you would have enough money to cover your expenses that day. Um, financial freedom is back to the sentiment that I mentioned before, where money is no longer the primary reason or excuse why you do or not do something. It's a consideration, not the consideration. That's financial freedom. That's a state of mind or a state of being, where the other one is a state of having or a state of cash flow. So when we're economically independent, we can typically swing for the fences in what we do. We have more ability to go for a vision, especially maybe you have someone that you're a significant other thinks differently. They want more stability and security and you want more growth. And those seem to be at odds, which can be when we don't understand each other's money persona or we don't understand money in general. And those two things, rather than becoming an amazing ally, become two opposing forces. That is the number one reason most people say they get divorced is because of money problems. 
Now, I don't really think it's money problems. My assessment of that is when we have money problems that are insurmountable in our mind, we stop thinking about an exciting, compelling future. And we start wishing that our lives was good like it used to be in the past. Right. And when we can't think forward in a positive way to the future, it starts to decimate our energy and destroy our prosperity. And so what do we do in that point? We start, you know, we start looking for who's to blame or what to do or what the object, you know, what were the obstacles? And so um, this is why it's really important to know each other's money persona. Like my wife and I haven't thought about money since 2008. Um, that was a good fight in 2008. We didn't know each other's money persona. I was the, I looked at myself as the gas. She was the brakes. I got overextended in real estate. She was going, okay, so why did you get in all this real estate? We had a really good life before, but now you're just on the phone with, you know, attorneys all the time and property managers and dealing with partners that are, you know, going belly up and now you're inheriting properties and now you're talking to realtors. Like I didn't really think clearly about what money was and what its use was and how I wanted to earn it. And I think a lot of people don't think about the way they want to earn it. And that makes it difficult to discern an opportunity from a distraction. An opportunity is something that actually aligns with who you are and helps accelerate the results of your vision. A distraction is it may or may not make money, but it looks like it's going to make money, but it takes you away from who you are and what you're out to create. That's why lack of clarity in our vision or the consumer condition bringing in scarcity is the reason why wealth is destroyed more than any other thing. No amount of luck, no saving, no discipline, no rate of return, no financial advisor can save someone if they're in scarcity. Scarcity will give us illogical levels of thinking that lead towards the destruction of wealth because it tends to move towards a selfish state where we're only thinking about survival and it eliminates or it limits prosperity and value creation for others, which is actually the way to have exponential growth when it comes to financial wealth. So. Now, you've asked two questions, and I've gone for quite a bit of time off, off such a small amount of questions. Yeah, well, let's add some more to the mix. Um, All right. So one of the things I've, I've heard you talk about, and um, I've you know, seen in some of your other materials that I've studied, um, you talk a lot about value creation and having people not focus on making money, but focusing on how they're creating value. And you know, I think that's one of the things that I actually particularly like about your work. Um, and I'd love to go a little bit deeper there because I think that it's it's so common and very easy for people to get caught up in pursuing making money because, you know, in the world in which we live, there is a need for money. But that often happens at the expense of who they feel like they are at the expense of their passion and at the expense of that natural impulse that a lot of us have to do good in the world. So yeah, just curious to hear your your thoughts on you know, how does someone if they maybe are caught up in feeling like they need to make money, how do they shift from that place into identifying what their unique value offerings can be and then how they pursue that in life? This isn't always, this is tricky. It's not always easy because I feel like there's a lot of people in the world that get stuck doing what they do because they know how to make money doing it. And they've also increased their lifestyle to meet or exceed what that is. So they don't have a lot of space for growth because there's a limited time. Maybe they have kids, maybe they have, maybe they're married, maybe they've got a business, maybe they've got, who knows? I mean, I've got a 13 and 16 year old. I feel like my wife's just constantly driving everywhere, you know? And so that consumes, I always joke, I'm like, you're one of the best people at helping people 
and asking questions and listening and helping them grow, but you're too busy driving kids around. And I feel like that happens for a lot of people is a lot of their skill sets aren't tapped into because they're busier than, and, and like, if I got to the root of that, it's because a lot of people start out in the hole. They start out in debt and that debt starts to become a driver for them to start earning. But sometimes they earn at the expense of the greater vision or the greater opportunity because it's trading time for money because it's taking care of those basic necessities that if they don't, they aren't going to have, you know, food and shelter at an at a adequate level. And then even when they start making a lot of money, sometimes they justify spending more because of all those years of hard work of going to school and whatever it might be. And so now they deserve these types of things and we can buy things at such a low interest rate, whether it's a home or whether it's a car. So all of a sudden we're financing future working hours for things that we're enjoying today at a premium with interest. So I think that that really is, is one of the trappings that we kind of have to watch out for because ultimately, if you can invest in your skill sets beyond just degrees and education that the world's giving you, but like emotional intelligence, financial literacy, communication skills, like the things that the world needs to have in the, you know, neurohacking world that they wouldn't know about that you guys are bringing to them that give them exponential result is mental capital. And when we have substantial mental capital that really enhances and improves other people's lives, there's opportunity for exponential growth and wealth because we're either going to impact more people or more, or more deeply impact those that we currently reach. But either way, those are really the roads to riches. So if we're stuck just doing something in the name of earning because it's a necessity, that doesn't leave the space for thinking. That doesn't leave the space for listening to ourselves and discovering our purpose or creating a compelling vision. There's so many people out there that their vision is, I'm gonna work, fund a retirement, and then when I retire, I finally get to live the good life. Well, what happens if you don't make it because you are you don't take care of your health? Or I had two partners die in a plane crash when they were 35 years old. And so I think one of the biggest issues when it comes to money in life is we bought, we bought into a faulty notion called sacrifice. Right? We think that sacrifice is required in order to be successful and hence why the world's so unhealthy. I mean, why so many people are, maybe they're not sleeping enough or they're not getting enough movement or sunshine or water or just the basic elements, not even getting into the depth of what you guys would teach, but just some of the basic things because they think it's always gonna be a temporary thing that becomes a permanent habit. And before they know it, they're addicted to this kind of, limited lifestyle that was all in the name of better life. And they may have the stuff in the consumer condition, but they don't have the fulfillment. They don't have the joy. They don't have the happiness. They don't have the energy. They don't have the health and the longevity because ultimately they become enslaved to cash, to finance, to, to loans, to all those kind of things. And this is unfortunately the state of the and condition of most of the world today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I don't even know if I answered your question because I take so long to get to the point there, you know. <laughs> I mean, I think you answered at least part of it. And I think part of it is an in, in easily answerable topic, especially in a you know, broad sense like what we're doing here today, right? Because it was sort of a how-to question, but the path there I think is quite different depending on where each person's starting point is and what beliefs they're working off of. Yeah, you, so. you've got to develop your mental capital. And you've got to invest in your relationship capital and relationship capital has two facets to it. One, people that you support 
and that they probably pay you. And number two, people that support you and you likely pay. So this is, there's a lot of people that don't have enough people supporting them and they get stuck. And part of it's because as humans, we've gotten pretty terrible at just asking for support. We're like these rugged individualists thinking that we have to do everything on our own. And if we ask for help, somehow it doesn't count, you know, or somehow that that's weakness. But the reality is collaboration is the game if you want to really have an expansive future. And and if we try to be jack of all trades, that becomes pretty difficult to, to master our mental capital in a way that is ultimately meaningful for the people that we support and serve, serve ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. So another area I'd like to explore a little bit, um, you know, I, I've heard in your materials, you talk about the, the sort of faulty thinking of people trying to plan for retirement. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that's a fairly ubiquitous thing, at least in the West, right? Most people have this idea that we work for, you know, several decades, we kind of sacrifice most of what we want in life along the way. And then, you know, towards the end of our life, we're going to get to enjoy it. And one of the things I've appreciated in you know, hearing your book is really airing away from that and looking at how do you build a life that is actually worth living that you don't necessarily need a vacation from or you don't need to retire from, but how do you, you know, make your finances actually work for you to improve quality of life throughout the duration of life, particularly when you're most physically capable of engaging in it. Um, I guess that wasn't really a question as much as uh, the thing I appreciate about your work, but I just, I'd love to hear you speak more into that and how people can sort of shift those ideologies in themselves. I think when it comes to finance, we, we bought into that we don't have the time, we don't have the expertise as kind of two main excuses that hold us back. And there's a lot of myths when it comes to money and, you know, written about these quite often myths like it takes money to make money that's a defeating statement people say that feel like they don't have enough money and it limit eliminates them from being more resourceful or high risk equals high return risk means chance of losing increasing your chance of losing isn't going to help you win it's going to have you more speculative i'm sure you'll hear stories of people that speculate and make a lot of money but when that creates a behavior in someone else that they're doing something they don't understand that's gambling that's not investing and there's going to be unfortunate losses along the way you know, there's, there's, there's so many beliefs that of retirement that says, Hey, if I want to be, if I want to retire, it's a set it and forget it, invest early, often, and always. It's kind of a, uh, an equation of wealth being a function of how much money we put away, which is the, it takes money to make money times the rate of return we get, which is the high risk equals high return type of uh, fallacy. And number three, um, how much Time can you wait because compound interest or the, you know, you're in it for the long haul. So it takes money to make money, high risk equals high return, and you're in it for the long haul are these three erroneous dogmatic beliefs around retirement. So people are setting aside money. The market has these amazing times like the 90s where they're like, it's oh, it's so good. We're going to have such a great life. Or like right now, the market's been on a big, big run. But what people aren't accounting for is interest rates are so stinking low that if they retire, they're getting such a measly amount of interest on their investments that even if they've got millions of dollars, they might be living like a pauper. Maybe they're only getting $30,000 per year per million dollars that they've saved up because interest rates are so low and taxes might go up or we know inflation's going up. We're watching that and, and if we have the front row seat to that wild ride or maybe interest rates continue to go down, which they can't go down much lower than they are today. But, but those three facets 
it was people set all this money aside thinking if I put up enough money away, earn enough return and wait long enough, one day, someday, I'll finally get to enjoy life. And they miss out on memories and experiences along the way. They do things they wouldn't have otherwise wanted to do or would be willing to do, but they're doing it for this future potential better life. And then when they get there, well, what happens if they get there in the year 2000? Three straight down years that decimates their entire dream. What if they get there in 2008? Three straight down years that starts to decimate their life. They get there in 2020. Very turbulent, very scary year. Okay, now it came back. Are we going to be okay? I don't know. Interest rates are low. When is the stock market going to come back down to earth? Because it seems overinflated. Well, these factors become complicated because no longer when we retire, are we in charge of the outcome of our income? It's really assets outside of our control, whether it's bonds or stocks or annuities or insurance plans. And so now people are kind of at the mercy of financial instruments rather than their own value creation. And so what I like to do is help people become economically independent in three to seven years, which I met someone at Mindshare that was like, hey, when I met you three years ago and you said that was possible, I thought you were crazy. And then they got up and got some award for being the most improved person and they were economically independent in three years, starting from pretty meager situation, but just doing the work. And if we want to have prosperity, responsibility coincides with that. It goes hand in hand with it. The good news is you don't have to learn about the stock market or tax liens or commercial paper or options trading or any of that kind of stuff. You just have to figure out what your investor DNA is. What kind of investments make sense based upon who you are? I've had very prominent people in the health space that have done extraordinarily well just staying invested in that lane. Other types of businesses, but they understand those businesses. They understand the products. They have massive followings that when they mention the products, move those products. They have like all these mechanisms that they can legally influence what's going on in the, in the economy where they can't really do that with a publicly traded stock. And so they, they relate more to it. And, and so if we can get people financially independent, now they can really swing for the fence in their business, which might mean more delegation and less burnout, which might mean taking time off for bursts of time over time. So you're not just waiting till age 65. I did 63 days in Italy one summer. We did another 30 days another summer. Like I'll be taking a lot of December off this year, like so that I don't completely burn out. So I don't want to retire. I want to see people build a life they don't want to retire from where they continue to add value, but they redefine how they work on a daily basis is to not get stuck in burnout or not simply reinvest every single dollar back into the business without finding a way to translate or transfer that to personal wealth or at the expense of enjoying everything along the way because we go back to the beginning, which sacrifice is really this, this vice that traps us in losing gains. Sacrifice wants us to think it's temporary, it becomes permanent. Sacrifice wants to think, oh, I can trade time for money or, or scrimp and save, but that's all at the expense of today. So really it's about plugging financial leaks. It's about keeping more of what you make without cutting back. It's investing back into yourself and your skill set so that you have more unique mental capital to bring to the world and reach to those people that you're serving so that you actually get money that comes back in. And as you can start to build that where it's not all reliant upon you, but it's reliant upon a structure that you create or people that support you. So you have a little bit of time freedom, then you don't hit that burnout. Then you don't go, I have to retire because I hate what I do. And if, you, if you'd have all the money in the world tomorrow and you would stop doing what you're doing today, you might be in the wrong career. You might be doing some of the things that aren't really the most fulfilling for you. And I'm not saying to do just a cut and go, all right, I'm gonna totally change things tomorrow. But what if you were to pick up the pen and just start saying, what is your vision? What works for you? What's a winning game for you? 
Like, I don't think people even understand what game they're playing. We're playing the game called the consumer condition. More is better, bigger, better, faster. One day, someday, eventually it'll all work out. And I just need to sacrifice another week, another month, another year. I can make up for it later. And what happens is we finally crash and burn or figure out it wasn't worth winning. We check these boxes and we go, it didn't work because we're playing someone else's game. I was playing someone else's game in my 20s. I was playing this game called Striver. Like I can just work harder than everybody else. I will sacrifice so I can live like no one else can live sometime in the future. And when people say, what are your hobbies? I'm like, business, like what else? Business, like that was just it. I was obsessed, that's all I did. I know I was heavier, I wasn't as healthy. You know, that's where most of my gray hair came during that time. You know, probably nutritional deficiency, probably tell me what was really going on there. You know, uh, but ultimately that was kind of the, the, the way I thought was the way to win. But then I had to realize like, what game am I even playing? What, and if I win the game I'm playing, could I win and still end up losing? Yeah, losing my health, losing my family, losing my purpose, you know, and have a big pile of cash that I give half of it away through divorce that I, you know, give and the other half chasing back my health. So we've seen the writing on the wall that way, but it's still sneaky and tricky. Because again, it's like the devil on the shoulder being like, it's, it's, just, it's fine for now, but then it just becomes who we are. So to take a breath and say, what game do you want to play? Like, and how do you want to play that game? And what are your rules? Not society's rules. It's almost like society hands a rule book to us that says, he who has the most wins, go, right? And so then people just go, but it's like, well, most what? And what do you really want? But if you take the time to say, here's when I work, here's when I don't work. Here's what I do. Here's what I don't do. And start looking at opportunities versus distractions and, and your wins and your lessons along the way. Then you continue to evolve and say, you know, uh, when I hit my 30s, I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't do Friday one-on-one -on -one meetings. As a matter of fact, I don't do one-on-one -on -one meetings. I'm a one-to-many guy from here. I'm going to write books. I'm going to, you know, so I started reestablish the rules based upon what worked for my life. And people didn't have my cell phone that were clients, you know, like, because I didn't want to be available at all times. I could be accessible at the right time, but not available to the point where I couldn't be present with my family or other aspects of my life. And look, this is some of the hardest yet most rewarding work because society tells us you've got to be on social media. You've hundred percent of the time, you got to be on email. You got to answer every text. It's like, it's, it's always about availability, availability versus accessibility, which is what if you had your rules and parameters of when and what you choose to do in any of those forums or formats, you know, cause I don't really do much um, really with, with social media. And yet people are like, well, how in the world are you going to be a comedian? I'm like, well, I mean, I'm still filling venues. I've done 11 cities so far and almost everyone was hundred percent full. Um, and Dave Chappelle's not on social media and he seems to have this comedy thing uh, going pretty well for him for the most part, you know, like, but, but it's, it's, again, we don't establish our rules. So we get in the trappings of everybody else's rules and trying to model what everybody else has done. Yeah. I like this area. Cause I, I think you're right. I think that, you know, people will get so caught up in that there's a certain way that they have to do things. And then they try to adapt who they are as individuals to this sort of amorphous concept and end up miserable and kind of losing a sense of who they are in the process. And, and what I hear you saying is that one of the key things that actually allows for more success is not trying to fit into a standard box or do things a particular way, but actually define 
how you work effectively, what does and doesn't work for you, and then set appropriate boundaries. Um, right. I know, like for me, that's been huge for probably most of my career. I thought that there were particular ways that I was supposed to do things where I had seen people be successful at it. And I thought I had to be available all the time, used to sleep with my cell phone under my pillow, despite knowing the health consequences of that. You know, and now it's like, I put my plane on my phone on airplane mode, don't touch it again until yep. a while after I wake up. Like, And it, it was such a hard shift to be able to start making certain changes and say, hey, when I work this way, I'm actually miserable and less productive. And when I work this way, even if it doesn't work as well for certain other people, I'm getting so much more done and impacting that many more lives. And so I, I think that's, yeah, I just, I really appreciate that area of the, the importance of being able to set healthy boundaries around work and more than that, actually get to know ourselves and what does and doesn't work for us and then adapt our work life to be able to meet that. Totally. So, and it's, it's tough because we have to like, when I was in my twenties and I decided, okay, I'm going to take some days off. That was like withdraw. I was like, well, I, I need to be in touch with people all the time and checking my phone. And so I had to go up in the mountains and go snowmobiling or go mountain biking so I could be away from that. And it, it felt like withdrawals. And then eventually it was like, okay, well, my computer doesn't leave my office when I'm done for the day. I never bring it into my room. You know, that was just a rule or, Hey, I'm, I'm not really one to respond on email. So I'm just going to get rid of email. That was my rule. I'm not saying this is what everybody else's has to be. You know, it was like, hey, we want to do summers in, in Europe. Like, we just invented a new game. And it's not like we had the solution from day one. But I remember when I hired a new assistant um, and when I was early on in business and she was doing scheduling for me. She goes, all oh, these people can only meet at 8 p.m. And I was like, now it's trying to draw boundaries. I go, well, ask him if they meet with their doctor at 8 p.m. Because uh, I'm going to be their financial doctor here, um, and I don't eat, meet at 8 p.m. I meet from 9 to 5, and if they can't do that, they'll probably find someone else. And sure enough, they schedule for 10 a.m. the next week. Um, but if we don't set expectations, the people we serve create expectations for us. Right. And if we have those expectations clearly set, we can have more peace of mind in our life. Um, and and so. It's not always easy to do, but if we, especially because we have our old ways of being, and sometimes when we make these changes, the people who used to interact with us expect us to behave the way we always behave. And that means sometimes we lose some of those people as clients, patients, or whatever you might call it, because they don't want to play by the new set of rules. They're going to allow you to grow. They're going to allow you to have this quality of life. They're going to make it so you don't burn out. They're going to make it so that you can continue to do this into you know older years when everybody else still has more brain power, but instead they're not using it because they're just beat up and exhausted. And so I think that financial literacy is a huge part of this so that we understand how to have money service properly and not have to worry about it all the time. And when we have a grasp of how it works in the basic sense and then make decisions based upon cash flow versus accumulation or efficiency versus risk or you know simplicity versus complexity, or automation versus effort, like these types of factors start to add up and exponentially make a difference over time. And, and so to me, it's progress over perfection, done is better than perfect. And then just look at our own lives and go, hmm, where am I operating in a way that isn't working? Where am I, where are their footprints of failure? Where are their footprints of frustration? And what am I doing there that isn't working and what could I do differently? So for example, 
the very first thing I like to do with people um, in our firm is find where they're losing and leaking money rather than having them save more money. Look at ways we can undo budgets and just automate the savings versus restrict budgets and restrict also their level of production. Because a lot of times, I don't know, being on like a really strict budget, like being on such a strict diet that, you know, you get to the point where you're like, I'm just going to binge on Saturday. I'm done with this. And then it's a rubber band type of process. Right. And there's been a lot of studies on that in finance. So again, I'm looking for how do we create simplicity and elegance in order to create a more profound result? Yeah, makes perfect sense. Um, so what are, what are some of the best places you could direct people or, you know, things for them to study to be able to start to expand financial literacy? So garrettgunderson.com forward slash quiz, two R's, two T's, garrettgunderson.com forward slash quiz, they could figure out their money persona. And that money, like we had, we did, uh, where did, we just had a challenge we were a part of where people took this and people were like, oh my God, this completely describes me or, oh my God, I didn't realize it, but it completely describes me. And this is so helpful to know. But it really dictates how we make our financial decisions, good or bad. And when we start to understand it and we understand the money personas of the people that we love most and we spend the most time with, we can start to learn how to operate more in harmony. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a great, you know, immediate resource. Um, I think if you go to garrettgunderson.com forward slash comedy, you can get a free download of one of my books or two of my books. Um, so uh, whether it's Killing Secret Cows or What Would Billionaires Do? Um, and we've created that link because I'm like, I'm out here doing comedy, but I want to have people take something home with them. So we're giving them books through that. So those are, those are two really nice resources, uh, you know, that, that would be useful. Great. Yeah. No, I think that's good. I haven't actually done the quiz yet, but I think that, I mean, that seems like a particularly interesting path because it's a bit more personalized, right? It's having people identify their personas, you know, what their sort of maybe inherent strengths and weaknesses in the domain of money are so that the pursuit of knowledge in that area can be more customized to what the actual needs are. You learn your shadow persona and your winning persona. So you can see kind of the dark side and and what's going on there versus what the, the most, you know, profound side would be. So, and, and it's, it's interesting because my son really understands it and he's 13 and so we'll be watching a TV series and he can say which persona the characters are, you know, we're watching nice. Parks and Rec. He's like, oh, that's, that person's this, this person's this, and oh, this person you think is this or this. And, then, and you could totally see it. Then we try to do it with the office and some of them are really clear. Some of them are, you know, like, ooh, I would be awesome to have that character take a quiz as that character and see what they would get. Would they be this one or this one? But it's pretty cool to watch him start to have that sink in and understand how that works. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I really like tools like that because it, like for me, it drives self awareness, right? Like if I'm able to identify what some of my patterns are, and then like you said, there's sort of the the dark side and the light side of each persona. When like it gives me an opportunity to pay attention and watch what's happening inside of my own brain, and when I'm starting right. to look at something, if I can tell that it's you know triggering part of a uh, you know unhealthy idea that I'm holding. I'm more readily able to identify that quickly and then be able to make different choices around it as opposed to getting caught up in it. Or if I totally. recognize that it's on the positive side, I'm like, cool, this is an indication of growth and the direction that I want to keep leaning. Totally. Cool. Those are great resources. I, uh, 
yeah, look forward to our audience checking them out and look forward to seeing some of them on my own. Um, I guess another question before we start to bring it in for a close is you've talked, you know, at, at different points about how to make your money work for you more. Um, and I'm wondering what are some of the, the common things that you direct people to? I realize that this is a topic that, you know, is going to be different for each individual in each case, but I'm imagining there's probably some kind of core directions and principles that people could start to look at to be able to develop more ability here. Yeah, interesting. I don't I don't mention this book a lot. It's a fairly new book, but budgetingsucks.com. My book there is really like got not only the foundational elements of how to pay yourself first, how to automate that, how to plug financial leaks, um, where to save the money that's sitting in a savings account so it gets better returns and has tax advantages. Like that book is really A to Z the encyclopedia of finance of what to start with and what to do once you've got the start. And then when that happens, what the next levels are. So, um, it, you know, it's, it's amazing. We worked so heavily and hard on that book, but what would billionaires do always sells more than that book, but it's not nearly as comprehensive and doesn't have some of those, you know, pieces to put it together every step of the way. So, um, that, that book is, probably one of the best tools that anyone could get their hands on and really build out their plan if they want to do it on their own. Um, you know, I've got firms that I endorse and that I license stuff to that are brilliant at helping people actually put that on the ground and implement it. Because I kind of think if you've got more time than money, getting a book is a good way to do it. If you've got more money than time, probably best to hire someone to kind of condense it for you, personalize it, and help you out. And so a firm that I founded, Wealth Factory, is really good. And I think wealthfactory.com forward slash private, you can answer a few questions and then actually get a phone call for someone to say of one of their custom programs, how they might be able to help you implement some of those things um, in your life. Because some people might be further along, other people might be deep in debt. Some people might have a lot of complexity and risk. Other people might just be starting out. So, so we do have different programs for different people that we've created over the last decade. So yeah, on that topic, if, so if people want to learn more from you if they want to potentially work with you what are the best places maybe in, in which order for them to look because i realize you've got a number of yeah. websites a number of organizations yeah if they came to my comedy show that's the best way to start you know because <laughs> you get a laugh a little bit it's not too intimidating we've got miami philly st louis that's the best entry thing because you get a little bit of fun and it's the cheapest way you're ever going to see me speak which is kind of cool uh, you know, normally I'm charging a lot more than $47, uh, like what we charge for a ticket for that. But that's, that's a really cool start. Um, the foundational book that, uh, you know, again, at garrettgunnish.com forward slash comedy, Killing Sacred Cows really outlines the nine main financial myths that most people, um, if they don't understand, these are subtle lies that will confiscate wealth. But once they understand it, I feel like that's the ultimate book that gives you permission to succeed when it comes to money. It doesn't put all the pieces together. There's some really nice resources that are kind of bonus with the book, but it's more of a philosophical construct to help understand like, how does money work? Why is money important to me? Like what things are scarce versus abundant and how does that uh, apply to money? Um, and I wrote that book in my twenties and I just handed out to these billionaires a couple of weeks ago. And I just thought this is hilarious. I wrote this book in my twenties, but I reread it and did the audio book for it just a few years ago. And I was like, I couldn't believe I wrote that when I wrote it because it still holds so strong today. 
and is more valid and valuable now than even the day I wrote it before the 2008 crash. So I, I think that that book is, is so foundational, such a nice starting point. And then, you know, a lot of the resources would lead you to Wealth Factory if you wanted more one-on-one -on -one support, if that was the right situation. I mean, I've had a lot of people buy that book for their financial advisors and give it to them. And a lot of them are pretty good with it, not all of them. Um, you know, because sometimes it threatens their way of life of how they sell their retirement plans and things like that. It definitively dispels why deferring tax is not in your best interest the majority of the time and what hidden fees do to confiscate your wealth and where lack of cash flow isn't actually helping you along the way and slowing you down. So it's fairly articulate on those, on those things. Yeah, for sure. Look, when you optimize your finances, you have, you can have access to optimizing your health at a totally different level. You have less stress when you're in a good financial situation, when you're abundant thinking and in, with more financial freedom and you have more choice, which is going to lead to better health as well. And, you know, you could definitely be on the cutting edge of whatever technology and advancements there are when you can write the check for it and others can't. So to me, health and wealth have some correlations. One, they both have plenty of misinformation, but two, they're both things that you don't, you can't relegate. You can delegate and have people help you, but you have to be responsible for each one of them. Like, you know, we're finding amazing ways to hack a lot of things, but ultimately I pretty much still have to be in the room to have something, you know, work the majority of the time. I can't just go, hey, can you do my workout from where you're sitting? And I'm just going to go take a nap. Now that nap might be helpful for me, but I still have to do some level of workout, even if I'm putting something on my arms to, you know, uh, enhance it or restrict blood flow or whatever it might be or run cold you know, cold water through it while I'm doing it, all those things that might, might make that even more effective. But what I find is if we operate with velocity, which is in our economy, GDP or gross domestic product divided by M2, which is money supply, it tells us how many times can money exchange hands in a given year, the more velocity, the more output. So in our own life, we can live by one methodology that says, hey, you should budget. Budget says, cut, reduce, you know, eliminate, uh, and it's expenses are bad, which, which is not an optimization technique. It's a preservation technique. The better ways to optimize is through efficiency and expansion. Efficiency and expansion is velocity for you personally. If you take your personal output divided by your personal input and you can increase the output without having to set more money aside or cut back, it's because either you saved on tax, saved on interest, saved on investment fees that were not performing, or insurance costs that weren't transferring risk properly or were inefficient, or you're expanding your means. See, budgeting gets us to shrink and nobody shrinks away to wealth. Expansion is the game to optimization. How do you add more value? How do you get more clarity around your vision? How do you understand how money works? How do you invest back in yourself? How do you treat yourself as your greatest asset? How do you maximize your cash flow? How do you create economic independence? These are the questions rather than how do you set aside more money? How do you take more risk? How do you wait longer? Like they're completely different methodologies. One to me, is needs-based garbage that has nobody really knows what they're going to need in the future. We're making an educated guess that usually is off course from the first day that we assess it versus optimization and maximization says, let's make sure we get the maximum output with every resource that comes, which means how do we have our assets coordinate and work together? How do we have cash flow come in so we can get our dollar to do more than one thing and add more velocity rather than just accumulate? And you know that's a pretty quick synopsis at the end, but hopefully gives a sense of what I, what, you know, what I believe in and what I advocate when it comes to money. Yep. Yeah. So, so I think a lot of what I heard there was don't, 
don't defer your success to others, whether this is you know physical health or financial, engage others, collaborate with others, use the skills, knowledge, et cetera, but take personal responsibility that you're actually the one who's driving the ship and then you're using the support and the knowledge of others to be able to guide it in the right direction. Yep. And then I think the second part of what I heard you say there, and you know, this is definitely paraphrasing, is um, invest in that which makes you alive. Right? Put more time, money, energy into the things that create aliveness, because ultimately yep. that aliveness is what's going to be the thing that's going to let you create more value in the world, the thing that's going to make life worth living. Yep. And if your path to wealth is cut, 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 and those cuts make you feel less alive, it's probably not the right path. Right. That's, that's well said. So focus, don't diversify, expand, don't shrink and, you know, uh, invest back into yourself and be really strategic instead of being scattered. Sounds like good advice. So much of the way that people think about finances and the way that our world works economically is pretty broken. And, you know, our focus here is how do we expose new ideas that are more evolved and that can take us in a new and more evolutionary direction? So, right. yeah, definitely appreciating some of the, the approaches that you take that differ from and contradict a lot of the norm. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. Thank appreciate you. having me. Really on. appreciate having you on. This was, this was great. And, All right. Uh, so yeah, to learn more about Garrett and his work, uh, go to GarrettGunderson.com, KillingSacredCows.com, yep. uh, a number of other resources that'll all be in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much. Hey, have a great one. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.